Well, before we return to our series in Revelation, I want to give one more sermon on the resurrection, and this one from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, reading from the New King James Bible. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that as we uh, seek to dig into it and understand the power of your kingdom transforming every aspect of this world, uh, we desire that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done more and more in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in this world. We pray for your blessing uh, as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Back when my grandfather uh, immigrated to uh, North America, he was about 16 years old, there was another immigrant by the name of Marcus who immigrated from Greece, and he immigrated to Cambridge, Pennsylvania. Very excited about the new homeland, did not speak a word of English, but he immediately found some Greek-speaking friends, and um, they managed to show him the ropes of how to get around. And he especially uh, was enamored with a lady by the name of Alexandra, who introduced him to more Greek-speaking friends, but wanted to introduce him to some of her English-speaking friends as well. And um, she took him to the office of an American gentleman and started talking in English, and he was trying to be polite, you know, nodding attentively as uh, they're speaking with each other. But he got a little bit uncomfortable when the gentleman started asking him some questions, but with a little prodding from Alexandra, he said, yes, and I do at the appropriate times. And little did he know it, this was a justice of the peace, and he was now a married man. Uh, even after the ceremony, he had no clue that he was uh, married. Uh, he went on with life and uh, forgot about Alexandra for, you know, three or four weeks until a policeman showed up at his door and arrested him for desertion and non-support. And he was totally flabbergasted, didn't understand what was happening, why he was being arrested. They had to get a translator for him. And he eventually got things sorted out and uh, an annulment was made, but... Um, he learned the hard way <laughs> that there are life-changing implications to the legal transaction of marriage. Well, Paul pointed out a similar fact to the Colossians. They weren't in the dark like Marcus was, but they were forgetting the implications of their union with Christ in his death and resurrection that it brought them into a totally new relationship with God. It affected everything. In Colossians 2, verse 20, Paul said, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, you subject yourselves to regulations? He was telling them, leave your old lifestyle behind. You were buried. You died with Christ, you were buried, you need to be seeking a new life in Christ. Now, to use the analogy of marriage, he's basically telling these Colossians that um, 
they needed to live consistently with their married life. You're not, you're not a bachelor anymore. You can't be dating around to other people. You can't be leaving your underwear you know, on the floor like you used to. You can't be eating out of a pot. You need to be living consistently with your married state. You know, and um, that's the kind of logic that he's using in terms of our union with Christ. Christ's resurrection has profound impact uh, upon every aspect of what we think, say, and do. And I want to divide the application and your outlines into three parts. Uh, first of all, the exchanged life 2,000 years ago. This is the legal dimension, the marriage, as it were, the legal dimension. Uh, to the exchanged life. Verse 1 says, if then you were raised with Christ. Now, the first thing I want to mention is that the word if is not a, an if of uncertainty, wondering whether or not this is a, a true case. Uh, in the Greek, there are two kinds of if. There is the if of uncertainty, it would be like saying, if it rains next week, we're going to cancel the picnic. You have no idea if it's going to rain or not rain. So it's the if of uncertainty, but there's another kind of if in the Greek that is the if of logical deduction. If this, then this. It's sort of like saying to a man, if you're a man, then act like a man. You're not questioning the fact that he is a man, but you're saying based upon the certainty of the fact that you are a man, this is how you ought to act. This is why uh, some grammarians call this the if of certainty. It is a logical if. There's no doubt about the fact that uh, they were raised uh, with Christ. And so some translations translate it since instead of if in order to get that across. Since you were raised with Christ, here's how you need to be living. Now, what does Paul mean when he says we have been raised with Christ? Uh, there are some people who think that, uh, you know, we weren't even around before. It can't possibly mean that our souls were in existence back then and were raised with Christ. And so they say, well, this must refer to our regeneration. And it's true that our regeneration is sometimes spoken of as a resurrection. Um, Christ's resurrection guarantees our spirits will be raised uh, into new life. Our bodies will be raised at the end of time. But that's not what he's talking about here. He, he, he says, raised with Christ. With Christ. He's talking about Christ's resurrection, something that happened 2,000 years ago. And this is a legal transaction that took place in 30 AD. And I think most of you are familiar with the legal transaction that took place in terms of his death. Uh, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 20... It says, therefore, if you died with Christ, same Greek if, there was a legal transaction in 30 AD where the elect were treated by God the Father as if they died with Christ. Uh, and they were buried with him and they were raised with him. And so uh, if you can understand the legal exchange that went on where he died in our place, you can understand a little bit better the legal exchange that goes on in terms of the resurrection. Now, in terms of death, this is something every one of you are familiar with. Um, we deserve to die, as uh, uh, the one who prayed earlier mentioned, we deserved 
the wrath of God to be poured out upon us, but Jesus came down in the person, took upon himself human flesh, lived a perfect life, and he suffered the consequences of our sin. And so our sins, you know, are something that separate us from God, just like this book. Uh, If this was filled with sin, you'd have to have it a lot thicker book, at least in my life. Uh, than this, because you think of all your thoughts, all your actions, all your uh, deeds, not just the deeds that you've done, but the things that you failed to do. Uh, Those are all sins that are added up in that book, and Scripture says that that book separates us from God. And uh, God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, and it says that He hates all workers of iniquity. Those sins make us an abomination in His sight. He cannot embrace us to himself without dealing with that sin. So you, know, you understand the, the scripture that says that if this is Christ and this is us, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ willingly bore our sins, willingly faced God's wrath, and in turn he gives to us his righteousness so that God can embrace us to himself without any inconsistency with his holy character. Okay, so it's a legal exchange that took place. And so if, if you understand that concept, then the concept of the legal exchange in terms of life um, uh, also makes sense. The point of chapter 3 is that it's not just Christ's death that was exchanged for, unbelie- uh, for believers. Uh, And this is where a lot of people get confused. Uh, We're not just treated as legally having died. We are also treated as legally having risen with Christ. His exchanged death keeps us from hell. His exchanged resurrection gives us the legal right to approach his presence, to come into the throne room, to be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Ephesians says everybody who's a believer is seated with Christ. We're reigning uh, from heaven. There needs to be a legal basis for Christ to live his life through us. So man died both spiritually and physically as a result of Adam's sin, and Christ's resurrection forms the basis for renewing us spiritually and physically. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 17 says, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Without the resurrection, we would still be in our sins. So his resurrection is absolutely critical for giving new life to us. Uh, Romans 5 verse 10 refers to both exchanges. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So his resurrection and our life are tightly bound together. And therefore the resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago provided the legal basis for our spiritual life uh, and our physical life. Now let's move on to look at Roman numeral 2, and this is where I'm going to focus most of my attention this morning, because this is the area that I think so many pietists mess up. They think we're, you know, it's like an escapism from this world. And I hope that you can catch this concept of the exchanged life of Christ in our lives in everything that we do because it's, it's a revolutionary concept. This turned my world upside down when I finally understood it. 
Paul goes on to explain how this exchanged life was not only a legal act in the past when he says we were raised with Christ, but it's also an ongoing work right now. Once a person places his faith in Christ, there's an ongoing exchange that takes place. So he says, if then you were raised with Christ, notice that that's in the past tense. That's already happened. It's not a command. It is a fact. You were raised with Christ if you were one of his elect. It's not something you work at. It already happened. But the next words are commands, and they're all related to the present tense. So if you have been raised with Christ, here come the commands. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the police weren't telling Marcus that he needed to get married. They were telling him that he needed to act consistently with being married. Now, it was a mistake, but I'm using that as an illustration uh, for ourselves. Unlike Marcus, we know we have a new life. Okay, We were raised with Christ, but we still deny that by the way in which we live. Many times we deny it. We fail to live by the power of the resurrected Christ indwelling us. We fail to take advantage of the benefits of our new life. Now, these verses are so frequently misinterpreted that I want to spend a fair bit of time trying to unwrap them. Some people think that these verses mean that we need to go off into a monastery and spend time just thinking about heaven and praying and uh, thinking about non-material things and that the things of this world like marriage and jobs and physical things, man, that, that kind of drags us away from the Lord. That's not what, God, uh, what Paul is talking about. Uh, he is talking about not prayer. He's not opposed to praying and praying continually, but it's not prayer and meditation to the exclusion of life. He is talking about this being our entire life. Whatever he's talking about affects us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So rather than saying that we're to go into a monastery and try to escape from life, he's telling us something that is the exact opposite. He is saying that heaven and God's grace is supposed to invade and transform absolutely everything that we do. Now, even in a monastery, by the way, you can't get away and escape like they, they would hope to do because you still got to eat, still got to sleep, still got to shower, still got to clean your room. Well, maybe they don't clean their rooms in monasteries, I don't know. But there are still physical things, so they're not even being consistent there. I want you to notice that Paul has given his own interpretation of what he means by the phrases things above and things on the earth. In fact, I've underlined it in my Bible. In verse 2, the things of the earth, that little phrase there, is identical to the phrase in verse 5, which says, which are on the earth. Okay? So verse 5 is interpreting verse 2. It says, literally, therefore, put to death your members the things which are on the earth. Now, what are the things that they're put to death? They're supposed to be putting to death. Is it things like jobs and marriages and children and diapers and things like that? No. No, that, he's listing a whole bunch of sins. In fact, let's go ahead and read verses 5 through 10 of chapter 3. 
He says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him uh, who created him. So the things which are on the earth really amounts to our independent living, which we inherited from our first Adam. The things which are above is our dependent living, which we are inheriting from the new Adam, from Jesus, the, the new man. Uh, just like there was an exchange that legally happened 2,000 years ago, there is an actual exchange that's going on right now. The old man is being replaced by the new man. By the way, the, the word man in, uh, in the Hebraic concept, exactly the same word for Adam, man and Adam in, in the, uh, the Old Testament. So the old man is our old identity that flows from Adam, the new man is our new identity that flows from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want you to notice the put-offs and the put-ons in these verses. Verse 5, put to death the things on the earth. Verse 8, put off sin. Verse 9, put off the old man. And in exchange for that, we're to put on some things. Verse 9 says, put on the new man. Verse 12, put on tender mercies, kindness, etc., and in the following verses, all the way up to chapter 4, verse 6, he's saying we need to be exchanging the old life, the independent way of living with the new life in Christ. And in what areas are we to make this exchange? Well, he lists things like in marriage relationships, family life, faithful service of an employee to an employer, faithful treatment of your employees by an employer. So both the things below and the things above relate to stuff like cars and houses and spouses and children in two different ways, totally different ways. This is not escapism. This is transformation of life on planet earth. So the Lord's prayer does not say, Lord, please let us escape from this life so that we can serve you in heaven faithfully. No, it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? There's, a, there, there's this invasion process of Christ living his life through us in absolutely everything that we do. So in what way is fornication a thing on the earth and godly marriage relationship a thing that we're seeking from heaven? And yes, I'm talking about sexual relations, even something like that. Uh, you can engage in that either from your old identity with Adam or your new identity from Christ. It's not that one is physical and the other is non-physical. They both relate to physical things. Rather, the contrast that Paul is drawing out is the contrast between natural living and supernatural living in our day-to-day -day life here on terra firma. Paul does not want us to be so heavenly-minded in the false sense of thinking only about the future that we're of no earthly good. Instead, he wants us to be so heavenly-minded in the sense that we are realizing Christ relates to everything that we do that it transforms everything here on planet Earth. He doesn't want us going off to monasteries. Some people think that's the only way you can live like Christ. I mean, give me a break. Most of Christ's first 30 years were lived as a carpenter here on Earth. 
If you're escaping from your job, you think, oh, my job's tearing me away from the Lord, then you're not working at your job like Jesus worked at carpentry for 30 years. Okay? So we've got this, this false dichotomy, you know, that we think being spiritual means getting away from the mundane. No, Jesus dealt with the mundane for 30 years as a carpenter, and he wants you to live like he lived as a carpenter in the way in which you do your job. So how did he do it? He did it with a sense of doing it as unto his Father. Let me, let me give you a, an example from the Scripture, if I can find it. Um, well, maybe I'll, it'll come to mind in a second. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. Whatever you do, that's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul is reaffirming the, the, the dominion mandate that he gave to uh, Adam, but he's saying we have to do it with the empowerment of the new Adam, the new Je- uh, Jesus, the second Adam. Everything in life must be transformed from above. I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Paul says the same thing in various epistles in different ways to help us to understand this. So Galatians 2 and uh, verses 19 through 20. He says, for I through the law, so he's talking about a legal exchange here, I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. So that's all past tense. Now look at the ongoing exchanged life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is the genius of the exchanged life. When Colossians 3-4 through tells us how to live as godly husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, children, servants, masters, He's telling us, hey, don't do this in your own strength, in your own wisdom, in your own resources. He's telling us to ask for resources that Jesus has purchased for us to find our strength from above, to get our wisdom from Christ, to look to Him in everything that we do. So that, um, you know, even, even Kathy, you know, there's uh, neighbors who are wondering, how do you handle all of the pressures, you know, that you're going through and you've got all kinds of people uh, asking you for stuff, and you're, you're calm, you're cool and collected. Well, even in things like moving, which, by the way, thank you so much for all of the help that you guys uh, gave uh, this, this past week. Phenomenal. I just uh, I was thoroughly blessed by your service as unto the Lord in that. But even things like that can be lived by Christ's grace. So here's the point. It's not just justification which must be lived by faith. We also must be sanctified by faith, transformed in our mind by faith, doing the dominion mandate by faith. Why? Because the only way we can do it properly is by receiving our resources from the Lord Christ. Christ provides everything for us, and what he provides is utterly practical. Now, he's not opposing our efforts, not at all. James makes it very clear that faith works. Faith works. It's very active. But it's the source of your energy that is the question. Is it from Adam or from Christ? 
Now, it's very easy for Christians to fool themselves into thinking that they're Christians uh, by having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Outwardly, they're Christians, but they don't really have the power of Christ living through them. And let me try to illustrate this. If you imagine a room uh, that's got um, uh, deaf people and it's got people who are not uh, deaf, and you see a man... Uh, and he's not deaf. He's listening to music. He's got this smile on his face. He's, he's uh, tapping his foot and clicking his fingers, and he's swaying to the sound of the music. And a deaf person comes in, and he sees all of these people who are enjoying the music, and he thinks, you know, I want to have a fulfilled life too. I want to enjoy. So he sits down, and he watches what they're doing. So he starts snapping his fingers, tapping his foot, and swaying as well. If a person, a stranger comes in and looks at those two, the deaf man and the not deaf man, even though they're both snapping their fingers, they're both swaying, they're both clicking their heels or whatever, he instantly knows which one is deaf and which one is not because the one really does not hear. It's an outward conformity to what other people are doing. And unfortunately, some people are like that deaf man. They're going through all of the actions, but they are still deaf and blind. They're living the Christian life by the power of the first Adam, not by the power of Jesus. They want the fulfilled life, so they try to be a Christian. They go to all the meetings, they learn the doctrine, they pray, and they don't have the life. They still find themselves dry and spiritually bare. In fact, they've tried to be spiritual so many times without success they're discouraged. They finally just give up and say, you know, I guess we just go through the motions. That's the best that we can do. And it misses the point of the exchanged life. Verse 4 says, Christ is our life. He is our life. Hendrickson comments that this means that Christ is the source and the pattern for our lives. He not only tells us what to do, but he provides the life to live it. So what Paul is saying is that grace is not just a legal exchange 2,000 years ago that we receive in justification. That's a wonderful blessing, uh, but there's so much more. It is a practical exchange that we can experience every minute of every day. Now, because some people have lacked the power to overcome sin or to overcome Satan or to find joy in difficult circumstances— what they have done is they've come up with a theology that says, don't worry about it, focus on your legal exchange 2,000 years ago, find joy in your justification, don't worry about the power aspect of things. Uh, this is the reductionism of the sonship movement and the grace movement that's even in some Reformed circles. They limit grace to a legal exchange 2,000 years ago. In fact, their definition of sanctification is just remind yourself that you're justified. That's not sanctification. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I love the doctrine of justification and adoption. In fact, I think they've done the church a service by emphasizing our adoption and our sonship in Christ. It's helped people to not be so legalistic and uh, to have some joy in the security. We are secure in the Lord through faith in, in, his, um, in his righteousness. So I'm not knocking that, but it's only half of the story of the cross. 
Grace includes the wonderful doctrines of justification and adoption, the incredible exchange that took place, but grace continues with the doctrine of sanctification and the personal exchange that should be happening 24-7. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 tells us, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In fact, if you struggle in this area, it's a chapter I would really recommend that you study through. 2 Peter chapter 1, just a fabulous uh, chapter. Uh, you know, Romans 8 talks about the golden chain of salvation. Well, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 gives us a golden chain of sanctification. There's a whole bunch of links that need to be added in our lives. If any one of those links is missing, you will, you'll be powerless in your sanctification. You're not going to have success. So it's a, it's a great chapter to really uh, study through. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, he tells us that Christians can be cleansed from their sins, that's our initial salvation, and yet be nearsighted almost to the point of blindness and be barren and sterile in our Christianity. Why? Because we're not living by faith. We're not adding by faith all of these things, these steps of sanctification that he's given. So um, Paul on one occasion said this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. He's talking about power for living, which was uh, the title of um, a book that Gary North had hired out, Power for Living. It's not just just a legal exchange. There is power for living. Um, Now, it's wonderful when you're a criminal and you've been declared not guilty. That's what justification is about. You're, You're declared righteous in the sight of God. But the thing that made Paul able to face incredible adversity was the exchanged life. And when you read Romans 8, 31 through 39, from the perspective of the exchanged life, it takes on all kinds of new meaning. Paul said, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And sometimes you might feel like you're less than conqueror. Uh, I know many times in my life, I have felt less than conquerors. Um, we, we really have only two options, to live our new life by the strength we received from the old Adam. That's the default. That's what I tend to fall back into. That's the easy uh, way of doing things or to live by the strength we receive from the new Adam. That is not the default. That is by faith. It has to be a conscious decision. So ask yourself this question. Do you live most of your day and do most of your work in a way that any pagan could do? Do you live most of your day and most of your work in a way that does not require any grace from Jesus Christ? If so, then... Your mind is set on things of the earth. You're living independently. Do you do your dishes just because they have to be done? Or are you doing your dishes as unto Christ? This is the difference that Colossians is driving at. Now, one of the things that revolutionized my life in 12th grade was that I began to have a constant awareness of God's presence and power no matter where I was or what I was doing. 
Now, prior to this concept, uh, what I'm talking about this morning would not have made any sense to me. It would have just been a theoretical concept. I was sort of like that deaf person who was pretending to hear the music and pretending to enjoy uh, the music. But there came a time when I was either given spiritual ears for the first time or at least I, the Holy Spirit helped me to learn to use those uh, spiritual ears uh, properly. And it was an attitude of prayer throughout the day. It was not always verbalized, but I began to constantly recognize God's presence in my life. In that I was a janitor at the time and my janitorial work and finding joy in doing that work for the Lord God. I began to talk to God naturally about everything that I was doing, realizing He was watching me, wanting to please Him in that work. I had a constant sense of my need for Him. This is what John Calvin speaks of as living quorum Deo, a Latin phrase that means living before the face of God. Okay, Wherever there is faith, there is an awareness of God's presence in your life. Okay? And uh, where there is not faith, whatever is not of faith, uh, Romans 14, 23 says, is sin. Hebrews 11 says it's impossible to please God without faith. So let me repeat that. Wherever there is faith, there is an awareness of God's presence in your life. Well, for me, that means that there's long stretches of time when I'm not living by faith. I'm living by the old man by the old Adam, by my own resources. And this is, the, this is the struggle of our sanctification, is more and more living in the presence of God and even the mundane things like Jesus engaged in in carpentry. Living quorum Deo. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So here's a self-evaluation question. Does your 40-hour-a-week job pull you away from Christ? It need not. Christ was a carpenter, and there is nothing unspiritual about those types of things. You don't go to a monastery to live like Christ. Christ didn't go to a monastery. If you want to live like Christ, avoid the monastery, right? Get out there. Get involved in life. But some carpenters quite honestly, don't do their carpentry as unto the Lord. And I want you to listen to Jesus' words here. He, he said, The Son can do nothing by Himself. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Why does 1 Thessalonians 5.17 say we are to pray without ceasing? It doesn't mean that we have to have words coming out of our lips, but prayer is this sense of dependence and the sense of God's presence. And you can have that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even in your sleep, uh, de being dependent upon the Lord. Everything done from the old Adam will be burned up as hay, wood, and stubble, useless. On Judgment Day, it's not going to count. Only what flows from Christ will last for eternity. And praise God, we can do dishes, landscaping, roof removal. We can do everything uh, through Christ. Now, if this is all mysterious to you, I would just encourage you, Lord, to ask the Lord, Lord, open my eyes and enable me to enter into the exciting exchange of resurrection life that is available to me moment by moment. There's no need to limp and struggle through your Christian life on your own. 
Galatians 3, verse 3 says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And you could paraphrase it this way. Are you so foolish, having recognized that you're saved in point one by Christ alone? Are you now so foolish as to try to engage in point two by the power of the second, first Adam <laughs> without Christ? That's basically what he's saying in, in Galatians chapter 3. Our old flesh, our old man, is not capable of living the new life in Christ. All it can do is the imitation of that deaf man who was clicking his fingers and imitating something that he had never personally experienced. When the Spirit indwells a person, he brings the life of Christ powerfully to bear. Ephesians 1.19 says, What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So he's saying the same power that raised up Jesus from the dead is right now at work in your mortal bodies, enabling you to live, if you by faith choose to so live, to live by his power. Now this does not conflict with our own efforts. Faith is always active. Earlier in Colossians 1 verse 29, he says, To this end I also labor striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So he never says that God's grace and power is contrary to my actions. Uh, in fact, uh, Philippians 2, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We can only work out what he works in. Um, but uh, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I hope at least you're getting a, a longing to have more of this resurrection life being lived through you. So we've looked at point one, that's the legal exchange 2,000 years ago. It's glorious. It's a, it's a wonderful blessing. It means justification, adoption, privilege, security. We've looked at point two, an actual exchange of life that should be going on moment by moment. This is sanctification. This is transformed thinking. This is the dominion mandate lived through the second Adam. Point three speaks of an exchange life that will happen on judgment day in the future. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the exchange life has to occur throughout all of eternity uh, because it's only as we are hidden in Christ that we can avoid God's judgment. 1 Corinthians 6.2 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? When Christ returns, we're going to be judging the world with him. Okay? Each one of us is worthy of judgment ourselves, but because of Christ and his righteousness, God will give us the privilege of being a part of that judgment. So this is amazing grace that can turn a criminal into a judge, a righteous judge. Um, so hopefully you can see Christ is all in all. Verse 3 says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now let me, let me end by reading Christ's description of the judgment scene in Matthew uh, chapter 25. And I'll begin reading at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, 
Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. What's the least of the brethren? It's your babies and diapers. When you're changing those babies' diapers, when you're feeding that baby, you can be doing it as unto the Father and be actually doing it to Christ because of our union with Christ. So the bottom line is that seeking the risen life really means seeking Jesus. Now, if you're an unbeliever this morning, then you're still under the wrath of God, and you have not experienced this at all. You may have come to church, but I would urge you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at the earliest possible opportunity. Trust Him now and for all of eternity for your salvation. And if you're a believer and you cannot honestly say with Paul that you know anything about the exceeding greatness of His power within you, then start laying claim to those benefits that he's purchased. They're just sitting in a bank account, and you're not using it. He said in Ephesians 1, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, and it takes faith to get those blessings. Now, I have not accessed hardly any of my bank account in heaven uh, because my faith is still needing to grow. But this is what God calls us to do. Um, we can forget 2 Peter 1 says, become nearsighted almost to the point of blindness if we don't do this. So uh, it gives us the steps to take that. So don't live inconsistently like Marcus did. Some people present eternal life as pie in the sky by and by, but Paul wants us to begin slicing that pie and enjoying it right now. May it be true of each of us. Amen. Well, if you want what I've preached, I've written a prayer, and I've written it in the first person tense so that you can pray it with me and agree. And every phrase of this prayer is taken from Scripture. And so you should be able to say amen to it in, in faith and uh, lay claim to what we've been preaching about uh, by faith. So let me lead us in prayer as we ask God to have Christ live his life through us. Father God, your word is promised that if we ask for the Spirit, you will give of the Spirit far more readily than parents give the necessities of life to their children. And I lay claim to the how much more of Luke eleven thirteen, and ask that you would give me an extra portion of the Spirit's presence for today. I need the Spirit because you've commanded me to walk in the Spirit in everything that I do. Help me to sing in the Spirit, to worship in the Spirit, to rejoice in the Spirit to pray in the Spirit, since I do not know what I should pray for as I ought. Help me to love in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to be moved by the Spirit, to have my mind controlled by the Spirit. May every part of me be controlled by the Spirit so that I might live in the Spirit. I want to be taught by the Spirit, to speak by the Spirit. Wash and sanctify me by the Spirit. I know that Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, 17 through 20, is according to your will. And I ask that the reality of your transforming power would work in my life today. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. I do not ask this because I deserve it, but because I am united to Christ, and he has purchased everything that is necessary to my full enjoyment of the Spirit. I ask it simply because you've promised the Spirit to those who come in faith. Thank you for your gracious gift, Father. I love you and I praise you. May the Spirit cause me to glorify you today. Lord Jesus, you are the vine, we are the branches. I acknowledge that my life flows from you and that without you I can do nothing. I know that you were given the Holy Spirit without measure, and I ask that you would release your life into my life that I might bear fruit. Release your strength and your wisdom, your healing, and anything else to meet the needs of this day. You have said that all who drink of you will never thirst, since they will have within them a fountain of living water that never grows dry. I need that for my dryness. I lay claim to your promise in John 7, 37 through 39, that if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Lord, since you have been glorified and everything necessary has been done that we might receive the Spirit, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon me today. This passage says that anyone who thirsts may come to drink and will receive. Lord, I come to you and I now drink of you. Thank you for your gift of the Spirit. Thank you for your life-giving waters. And Holy Spirit, I invite you now to baptize me afresh with the fire of your love. I want to know you, not just about you. I want to experience your presence in my life. I give myself to you and ask that you would give yourself to me. I need your power in my life. Please come and fill me now. Come into my life as the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. I need those things in my life. I am your bondservant, and I come humbly to be controlled and moved by you. Whatever giftings you may want to pour out in my life today, I gladly receive and determine now to use to the glory of the Father. I will not limit your gifts by my perceptions of what I can handle or what I need. I receive your sovereign will to give as you please. Work in me mightily to the glory of God. Fill me with your gracious fruit. Help me to walk in the Spirit that I might not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I lay claim to your supernatural love that can love the unlovable. I lay claim to your joy of the Lord, which is my strength. I lay claim to your peace that passes all understanding, your long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Help me to do everything today by your working that you would replace my evil thinking with the mind of Christ, my rebellious will with the will of Christ, my unruly emotions with the compassion of Christ. Flow through me to minister to others. Please flood the deepest places of my life, washing away the filth and replacing it with the righteousness of Christ. Cleanse my wounds. 
that still tend to dominate my thoughts and are keeping me from emotional freedom. Help me to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to learn more and more what it means to walk in the Spirit. May I not so much as lift a straw from the ground without your presence, love, and approval. By faith, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you that even now you have answered this prayer and you have indeed poured out your Spirit into our lives. Praise be to your name. We love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.